Turn with me, please, Philippians chapter 1. And on last week, we concluded this first, our study of the first chapter of Philippians. However, I told you that we would revisit some of the last verses of the chapter. And we probably will do so for the next few weeks in order to adequately deal with what Paul is stating here and have an understanding of this without simply reading the text and then just brushing by or passing over it without giving it the proper consideration and without, uh, lest we not have the understanding that we need to uh, recognize the truth of that which Paul states. And so Philippians chapter 1, we'll begin reading just the last two verses, verse 29 and verse 30 of this first chapter, but then we'll be turning to other passages as well this morning. Paul said, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here to be in me. So Paul is here saying to the Philippian church, of course, that there is suffering. And we'll see in a moment as well that all of this, again, is in relation to what Paul has already stated concerning the gospel and the, the thesis of this entire epistle. Uh, that as well falls in, these verses fall in line with that. And I want to point that out to you also in a few moments so that we'll have, a, again, a better understanding of this. And for the next several weeks, probably, we will really kind of anchor down here in these two verses and, and expound upon them in light of what Scripture teaches, again, so that we might have a proper understanding. And let me begin before we even pray by saying this. Um, you know, it's been stated for years. I remember as a teenager growing up that it was said that, you know, things are going to get bad and things will get worse. And, of course, Scripture teaches that they do, and they have, and they will. However, also we know that Scripture tells us that, um, you know, in, in Genesis that the, the thought of man, the imagination of man, every thought and every imagination of man was wicked in the sight of the Lord. God destroyed the entire earth because of the wickedness, Noah alone finding grace, and his family, uh, that grace being extended to them because Noah was given grace by God. And, of course, in the fulfillment of God's eternal redemptive purpose, we understand why that was the case, because God had a purpose from eternity that he was going to redeem fallen man. And so we recognize that, but yet we also know that things progressively continually get worse, and wickedness seems to abound. And if we're not careful, we will put that, or we'll consider that only within the context of our nation. There is a, a great danger of looking at America as Americans and judging all of Scripture based on what's happening in America. And let me remind you of something. For centuries and even now for 2,000 years around this, in this world, since the coming of Christ, there have been those who have suffered severely, greatly, even been martyred for the cause of Christ and the sake of the gospel. So while we speak of things getting worse, while that is true, even in light and from the perspective of our own society and culture in the United States of America, let us not be deceived into thinking that suffering is only becoming a reality now and Scripture is just now being fulfilled in light of suffering or in what it teaches concerning suffering when the entire world, within the entire world, there are those who have literally, even in recent days or years, been martyred for the cause of Christ and for the gospel, which is tremendous suffering for the sake of the gospel. And so we want to look into these verses having a proper understanding this morning and looking at all of Scripture in light of these two verses specifically, and more specifically verse 29, in what Paul says here to the church at Philippi. So let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning before we get into our study. Father, we pause these moments to thank you for the grace that is ours in Jesus Christ, for the great provision, the sufficiency of our Savior, and we rejoice in your goodness 
We are thankful that you've made us part of your body, that we are espoused to become your bride. We are a people that you have called out unto yourself. And so, Father, as your people, may we embrace the truth of your word as it is taught to us. May we do so with understanding as provided by the discernment of your spirit. And may we enter into these truths, Lord, not only with an academic, intellectual, intelligent understanding, but, Father, may we do so embracing the truth spiritually that is before us, that we might be equipped as your saints, that we might be prepared, that we might be firmly rooted and grounded in the truth of Christ and his sufficiency, and that we might not be moved by all that takes place within this world in which we live and all the wickedness and ungodliness that seemingly abounds about us. We pray that we might have our eyes fixed upon Christ and as well view this entire life and all therein with an eternal perspective as you have called us to. And Father, we pray that as we have gathered here this day, that every soul that is met in this place that you might minister through the working of your spirit, the truth of your word, and as well prepare again our hearts that we might receive the truth. Now, Father, those as well that are away from us this day, we pray for every soul and we pray you might bring them back to us safely and quickly that we might come together to edify one another in truth and in love and that you might be worshipped thereby. Father, we ask that the very words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in thy sight, O Lord God, we pray. Amen. Thank you and be seated. Paul's thesis statement, as I've pointed out over the past many weeks since we began this study in Philippians, is in chapter 1 and verse 10. And in case you're not aware, it's, it behooves you to, to search Scripture in this manner, I believe, to see that, every, that Paul's epistles, as he wrote the epistles, he would place a thesis statement within the beginning, usually within the beginning, verses of the epistles that he has written. And you'll find that theme carried throughout the entirety of the epistle, uh, though he may deal with varying things and situations, yet there is a predominant theme that is given within every epistle, as you would see in a paper that would be written academically today. And the Paul's thesis statement, as we've seen over the past many weeks, is in chapter 1 and verse 10. And this thesis statement is just as significant in relation to the last verses of this chapter as it is to the previous verses of this chapter. Paul stated in Philippians 1, 9 and 10, And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, and that means discernment, the word judgment here is that of discernment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, Paul says, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. And so over the past 10 weeks of our study of Paul's epistle to the Philippians, we have carefully examined the first chapter of Paul's epistle to the church at Philippi, in which we've discovered Paul's emphasis in relation to approving the things that are excellent. Now let me, before we even delve into this truth, let me mention again that Paul's statement, approve things that are excellent, means that this church would acknowledge that which is excellent, and that word excellent means superior, of course, in contrast to that which is inferior. And though we're not going to pull up the verse this morning over the past many weeks, I have pointed you back to chapter 3 of Philippians, in which Paul provides a personal example of this in his own life when he says that he counted all things but loss and all things but refuse, all things but, but garbage, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus his Lord. And so Paul is saying it is inferior, the greatest thing is to know Christ, not only in salvation, of course, but beyond the moment of salvation, beyond the new birth, to grow in Christ, to mature in Christ, to be fruitful in Christ, to flourish in Christ. And so Paul is saying 
that he desired that this church at Philippi approve things that are excellent, that they be aware and acknowledge those things that have proven to be superior in contrast to all that is inferior. And so again, in chapter 3, Paul clearly stated that everything is inferior to knowing Jesus. Everything. And he concludes with that in reality. And so throughout this, this past, the past 10 weeks of our study in Philippians, we have seen Paul's emphasis concerning that which is excellent in relation to the fellowship of the gospel in verses 3 through 11 of chapter 1, the furtherance of the gospel in verses 12 through 26, and then the faith of the gospel, verses 27 through 30. And I myself am not one who am very prone, nor do I embrace alliteration, but all three of these are stated in that manner within this first chapter, within these verses. Paul declared in verses 29 and 30, then last week we concluded with this, and we're going to go back here this morning. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which ye saw in me, and now here to be in me. It's interesting, in Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, the second epistle, and we're going to look at some of this in a, in a moment, but in Paul's second uh, epistle to the Corinthians, of course, the first epistle was that of a letter of rebuke, and Paul's uh, thesis statement there is in verse 2, where Paul says, under the church at Corinth, uh, sanctified by Christ Jesus, called to be saints. And the whole point here is he's rebuking them because they have been sanctified positionally in Christ and they are failing to live out the truth of that sanctification. So God sends Paul to rebuke them of this matter and then he rebukes them further saying, of course, that they could not receive the meat of the word. He had to feed them as babes with the milk of the word. They could not digest the truth of God and the truth of Christ. And then we find in chapter 2, though there is still some situations in which Paul had to address those believers in Corinth, there is a great transition between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And the transition is that Paul begins speaking of this comfort and this consolation. And then he explains to them, as he does in this verse, and this is why I point this out this morning, that he says in verse 30 of Philippians 1, notice again, having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here to be in me. And so Paul is saying that to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians, that there is comfort and God is the God of all comfort. And he makes these statements because now, since the Corinthian church had repented with godly sorrow, and now they are submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ to the degree that they were, they were now identifying in the sufferings of Christ. And so Paul is saying, now that you are submitted to the Lord, and to the point that you are, you are now experiencing some of the same sufferings that I experienced for the sake and cause of the gospel. We'll look at this verse later again, but in Timothy, Paul said, Yea, or yes, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Shall is one of the strongest terms, one of the strongest terms in Scripture. And the statement being made there is to state that to suffer or to live godly is to suffer. So to identify with Christ in his life is also to, to identify in his death, which is to identify in his sufferings. And so Paul here is saying that it is given on the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. And then he identifies the suffering that he himself has and, and still continues to experience as, again, this being a prison epistle of Paul. So Paul is in prison while he writes this letter to the church at Philippi. And in writing this letter, Paul is in, suffer, in bonds. He's in prison. There's suffering involved for the sake and the cause of Christ and his gospel. 
And so here Paul is saying, you saw this conflict in me and you hear that I'm still in this conflict and the same conflict, the same suffering is as well a part of your life. So due to Paul's statement concerning suffering in this verse, verse 29 specifically of Philippians 1, I believe it to be beneficial to examine the truth of this statement in view or perspective of what the Scriptures teach us about suffering for the sake of Christ and the gospel as a whole. And Paul informed the believers at Philippi that it was granted to them. When he says it is given unto you on the behalf of Christ, he is saying it is granted unto you to suffer. It was God's purpose and design that they suffer for the cause of Christ. In other words, to be called by God to believe in Christ is to be called by God to suffer for the sake of Christ. We could even say that Paul is further declaring that to suffer for Christ's sake is excellent. Or that to suffer for Christ's sake is superior to not suffering for Christ's sake. Now, that's not how we often view things, obviously. But Paul is talking about approving those things, acknowledge those things which are excellent. I confess to you this morning that suffering is not something that I personally enjoy. Furthermore, I don't personally know anyone else who enjoys suffering. However, suffering is something that all people, without exception, both unbelievers and believers alike, experience. This morning, I want us to consider several truths taught throughout Scripture about suffering that we might better understand the significance of Paul's statement when he declared in Philippians 1.29 that it is given to us, it is granted to us by God to suffer for Christ's sake. By the way, when he says it is given, that is a passive voice verb, which doesn't mean it's something that we are acting out, it's something that is being acted out upon us. And so it is given to us, it is granted unto us, and God has purpose for it to be. Within Paul's epistle of Romans and his epistle to the Corinthians, Paul wrote quite extensively about suffering. And as we consider Paul's statement in Philippians 1.29 again, just to remind you, for unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. As we consider this truth, I believe it's also beneficial for us to revisit Paul's teaching on suffering in his letter to the believers in Rome as we examined them during our study of Paul's epistle to the Romans some years back. So this morning we will turn our attention primarily to Romans chapter 8, in which we find Paul speak to some detail concerning suffering in general, and more specifically, suffering within the lives of the followers of Jesus Christ. In Romans eight sixteen through 30, if you'd like to turn there and read with me, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Let me stop here for just a moment. Paul here says that we are heirs of God, meaning we have received of the blessings of God. But then he says joint heirs with Christ. And to be a joint heir is not only to receive of God in this context, but it is that we receive from God and of God just as the Lord Jesus Christ has received of the Heavenly Father because we are joint heirs with Him. And the only way that is possible is that we are identified in Him and He is dwelling within us. Therefore, we have received, as Ephesians, Paul says in chapter 1, verse 3, 
all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So to have received Christ is to receive the blessings of God as God has blessed his son in the flesh, Christ incarnate, as God had blessed Christ, so he has blessed us because he's given us Christ, which is his greatest blessing, and all blessings spiritually are discovered and experienced and received in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we've received the blessings of God, but notice with me something we don't often give much attention to or consideration to. The next statement, heirs of God and join heirs with Christ, same verse, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Do you see what Paul is saying here? Paul is saying, oh yeah, you've received all spiritual blessings in Christ if you've also received in like the sufferings of Christ, that you might be glorified with him. Isn't it so interesting how we live in a society in a day religiously where people love the thought of receiving all blessings from God, but yet want to deny the truth of suffering that is obviously associated with the identity that one has with Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to say in verse 18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity not willingly, but by reason of him who had subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, for what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. Within Romans 8, Paul points out several truths concerning suffering. And to give you a quick breakdown, first, or one, Paul states that suffering is to be expected within the believer's life in verse 18. Two, Paul describes the eternal benefits of suffering in the believer's life in verse 18. Three, Paul explains the reason suffering exists in verses 19 through 23. And then four, Paul expounds on how God uses suffering in fulfilling his purpose in verses 24 through 29. So before we begin to examine these truths which we've just read from Romans chapter 8 and emphasized by Paul in his statement in Philippians 1.29 again when he wrote, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. It is important, imperative, that we first address the great misconception made by many modern-day professing Christians. As I previously mentioned, I don't know anyone, including myself, who is in their right mind, who enjoys suffering, yet no individual is exempt from suffering in this life. 
There are many today who falsely believe that to believe and follow Jesus Christ results or should result in a comfortable life. However, the Scripture's teaching on suffering is absolutely opposed to such a claim or false belief. We read in John's Gospel record the promises of Jesus to His disciples to send the Comforter. In John 14, 6, John 14, 26, John 15, 26, and John 16, 7. And such a promise made by Jesus clearly indicates that there is a need for followers of Jesus Christ to be comforted. The comforter never makes one comfortable. The comforter comforts. He girds up. He strengthens. He fortifies those who are in need. And we all are in need. Even as followers of Christ, we are in absolute need. Again, I refer back to Hebrews when the writer states that we are to come boldly unto the throne of grace to find grace and help, mercy and grace and help in time of need. And I, I submit to you this morning to name one moment in your life, especially since you've been a believer in Jesus Christ, aware of the grace of God, a recipient of the grace of God. Name me one moment that you've not been in need of the grace of God. So the grace of God is ever-present in the person of Christ His Son. And so we are people who are in need of such grace. And when the Comforter, when Jesus promises and speaks about sending the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, unto the disciples, and ultimately, of course, unto us as followers of Christ today, we understand that does not mean comfortable, but comforted. And so if there is a need to be comforted, it means that we are not promised that we will be comfortable in this world. As a matter of fact, if you can live comfortably in the society in which we live, you can live comfortably with the mentality and ideals as they are, or lack thereof. If you can live comfortably with the mindset such as, as it is in the wickedness and the evil in this world, that means that you do not know the God of righteousness. And so to live comfortably is one thing, to live comforted is another. As a matter of fact, we are fortified and strengthened by the Spirit of God to continue to live this life unto the glory of God. And that's the only way that that will ever be accomplished. Paul explains this truth in Romans 8, 16, and 17 when he stated, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. In other words, to experience the glory of Christ, one must also identify in the sufferings of Christ. And even in Philippians, the book we're studying in chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says that I may know him, speaking of Jesus, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. And again, I allude to what I said a moment ago. Everyone loves to be an heir of God and join heir of Christ. Everyone loves that thought and that concept. However, they don't want anything to do with the sufferings of Christ. But isn't it interesting that Paul says that I may know Christ, that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection. And everyone again, everyone wants resurrection power. Everyone wants the power of Christ living with them. So they would claim, those who profess Christ. However, he goes on to say, and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death. And again, one thing Paul is emphasizing in Philippians 3.10 is this truth. That Paul so desired to know Christ because to know Christ was superior to all other things. 
And so Paul's acknowledgement and recognition of this brought him to the place and point in which he could clearly state and adamantly, definitively state, I want to know Christ in every possible manner in which I can know him. I don't want to only know his life. I want to know the resurrection power. I want to know his sufferings. I want to know him in his death. I want to completely be identified to Christ. Hence, again, in Philippians 1.21, Paul said, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To me. See, how you, look, we, we make that statement so often, I'm sure, and we want that to be true. But listen to what Paul is saying. To Paul to live was Christ. Hence, he could say what he's saying. I want to know everything there is to know of Jesus. And I understand the only way that will ever be possible is for me to identify in his life, his suffering, and his death. And so if that's what it requires for me to know him, then I want to know him in that manner. If God intended that the life of the believer would be that of one that is comfortable, then there would be no need for God's comfort and consolation, as Paul explained in his letter to those at Corinth. I mentioned this a moment ago, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 7. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation, meaning encouragement or comfort, also aboundeth by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer." Or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye be also of the consolation. So Paul is saying again, the same sufferings you have known me to experience, and even brought on by some of you, in reality, he says, now you have become a partaker in those sufferings. And the same was true of Paul. Paul persecuted the church of the Lord Jesus. Paul sent them to their death, if you will. And yet now, Paul is the one who is suffering for the cause of Christ. And so this is something that Paul said we identify in. And he said, as the sufferings, verse 5 of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1, for as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. Suffering is part of the identity with Christ for all those who are followers of Jesus Christ. To be a recipient of the blessings of God in Jesus Christ is also to be a partaker in his sufferings. Hebrews 13, 12 and 13 states, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. Now the context of this passage in Hebrews relates to Judaism and Christianity. Jesus Christ went without the gate. He went outside the city gate of Jerusalem to die, Golgotha. And it's one rejected by the religious Jews and religious leaders of his day. That he might also die as God's sacrifice for man's sin. And as New Testament believers in Jesus Christ, we are to embrace the reproach of Christ as a people also rejected by the world and its religion. And Paul is saying, or the writer of Hebrews here is actually stating that as it was in Judaism, as it was in the time of Christ's death, he was driven and walked outside the gate of the city to hang and to die on Golgotha at the place of the skull, and there he died. There he sacrificed himself. He laid his life down. 
He says, and the religious leaders and Jews, of course, cast him out in their own mind and hearts, and they rejected him. And he says to these Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, he's saying, so we also identify in that same rejection, specifically by the Jews of that day in which this was written, but the same is true today as well. Those who would reject Christ, religion that rejects Christ, he says, we bear the same reproach as Christ if we are identified in and with him. Again, Paul explained to Timothy that the result of living a godly life in Christ is to suffer. 2 Timothy 3.12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Let me explain this word to you before we move forward, because we speak of persecution, and immediately our minds go to Paul being beaten, or Christ being beaten with a whip, or someone being mauled, or someone being beaten upon and, and, and wailed upon, or what have you, and that's what we think of, and that can surely be true. That, that's part of persecution, or persecution would include that, obviously. However, the word persecution actually is that of oppression, it is that of opposition, and so what, what Paul is actually stating to Timothy is not, oh, Timothy, if you really live godly, then you're going to die a martyr. That may or may not be. If you're going to live godly, then you're just going to be beaten on by the world. That may or may not be. Religion's going to tear you apart physically. That may or may not be. But what Paul is stating absolutely definitively that we as well must acknowledge and recognize, if you live godly in Christ Jesus, you will face opposition without exception. And that's what Paul is saying. He's not saying you're going to die necessarily for the cause of Christ, though many have and some of us could. But he's not saying that. He's saying if you live godly, there is going to be opposition against Christ. It always exists. So from these verses we've considered thus far, it is clear that the Scriptures teach that suffering is an inevitable reality within the life of the follower of Jesus Christ. And as we now turn our attention to Paul's teaching concerning suffering in Romans 8, let us do so keeping Paul's statement in Philippians 1.29 in mind again, because we're not straying from this verse, we're expounding upon this truth. For it is, unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake. So let's look again at Romans chapter 8, verse 8, or verse 18 of chapter 8. For I reckon, Paul says, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. I have to tell you, I do like in the translation that the word reckon is used. The word reckon here for southerners is a dear term. Although it may not exactly mean the same thing, here we find that Paul uses the word reckon and he says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time. He's saying, I count credit and consider the sufferings of this present time that they are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Paul here is stating that suffering is not merely a possibility in the life of the believer, neither is suffering contingent on the culture in which one lives alone. Rather, Paul is declaring that suffering is a present reality for those who've been made joint heirs with Jesus Christ. If you are identified in and with the person of Christ, you face opposition. That's what Paul is stating. Romans 8, 17, he said, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Paul then stated in the following verse, verse 18, 
that the sufferings of this present time, indicating that there is present suffering within the lives of those who are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. When Paul wrote this to the church at Philippi, he himself is in prison, of course, Verse 29 of, of Philippians 1, he himself is in prison. And here in Romans, when he's writing, he's speaking about these sufferings that are existent in the present time. At that very moment, those who are joint heirs with Christ are experiencing suffering or opposition. So now that we've clearly seen that Scripture teaches suffering to be inevitable, there are several questions which must be answered. And I'm only going to ask one this morning and attempt to answer that. And it's the one question, probably the forefront when suffering is brought up or mentioned of most people's questions, and that is simply this. Why does suffering exist? Why? Not necessarily what is its purpose. No, why? Why is there suffering? The question is one which many people ask in an attempt to reconcile the truth of God's love with the evil and suffering which exist within the world today. Now, the short and simple answer to this question, which I want to delve into this to some degree, is this. Sin. Suffering exists because of sin. It all goes back to man's sin. This is where it all began. And there are two aspects to consider in regarding sin in relation to suffering. The first is that of original sin. Now, original sin is the sin of Adam in the Garden of Eden which introduced sin into the world. And theologically, I would hold to what is referred to as federal headship of Adam, in which means that I am identified in Adam. Adam represented mankind in his sin. Therefore, sin is passed upon all men, even though a man himself is, has not committed a sin. He is sinful in his very conception. David, again, in Psalm 51, stated, and sin did my mother conceive me. We are shapen in iniquity, the Scripture teaches us. So the point of the matter is, I am inherently sinful because of Adam. Now, before you get too anxious, become too anxious to point your finger at Adam and blame him, you'd have done the same exact thing. But yet, Adam still... I identified him, and I think further proof of this is Scripture, and there's people, there are debates theologically about federal and seminal headship, but the reality is in federal headship, I am represented in Adam, and I find that to be even more so emphasized in Scripture in this regard. Remember, Adam is the Adam, and Jesus is the, the second Adam or the last Adam, and therefore, I am, all of men are identified in the person of Adam in sinful nature, and all the redeemed who have had a new birth are identified in second or the last Adam, which is Jesus Christ. So original sin is the sin in the Garden of Eden, which introduced sin into the world. And then there are, the second aspect of this is actual sins. And these are the sins which men personally commit as descendants of Adam. So I am sinful inherently, meaning I am born with this sinful nature passed on to me by Adam, my forefather. And so are you. But then also, I am guilty of my own sins. And guess what? You are too. So original sin has caused us to be inherently sinful, but actual sins are the sins that we commit because of the sinful nature. 
Now, although suffering may not always be the result of one's actual sins, and I point out this distinction for this purpose. In other words, if you look at a child that is born deformed, that child did absolutely nothing to result in being deformed or deformation. So that child has not done something to cause it to be born in a deformed state or with some disease or to be, formed with, or to be born with just moments of life and then to die. That child is innocent of committing an actual sin that the result produced would be that of death or deformation. Now, this child is not innocent. The child is inherently sinful from original sin, but they are innocent in terms of their actions. They've not committed some actual sin that caused them to be this way. But then remember that the reason they are born in such a manner still goes back to sin, and it is that of original sin. So because sin has entered into the world and death have passed upon all men and all have sinned, and because the curse is now upon the earth and the world and all creation as it exists, all people suffer because of sin. And this is just an irrefutable truth. So although suffering may not always be the result of one's actual sins, meaning the sins of which one may personally be guilty, Suffering is always a direct result of original sin, that is to say the curse which resulted from Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. And let me give you another example, for instance. If someone were to uh, go out and, and become addicted to drugs and become a drug addict, and then they die from an overdose of drugs, well, that is a result of actual sins, which still goes back to original sin, the sinful nature, but it is a consequence of their action. And so that helps to kind of distinguish maybe between the two and the results of the two. Death is the end result nonetheless, but yet the manner of which it comes about can vary. In this text, Paul continued in Romans uh, chapter 8 to explain not only the reason suffering exists in the world, but also the extent of its reach in the world. The question of why suffering exists is one which is asked from a skewed perspective usually, and that is to say the perverted view due to one's inherent sinful nature or original sin itself. In other words, one people have said things, some people have made the, asked the question or made statements such as this, say, oh, if God is such a loving God, then how could such a loving God allow something so, so bad to happen to, or such bad things to happen to good people? I don't think you'll ever find an answer to that in a nutshell, greater than that which R.C. Sproul stated when he said that only happened once. And he was referring to Christ. The only time bad things happened to a good person was when Jesus was crucified. And that's it. That's a skewed perspective. The foundation, the premise is absolutely incorrect and in error. Here's the premise. Man is good, man determines what is good, and God is bad because he allows bad things to happen to good people. No, hear me. God is good. Men are bad, and men deserve for bad things to happen to them. That's the truth. So, it's a skewed viewpoint. And let me show you the beauty in this. When we receive the grace of God, it is not earned, it is not merited, it is not something rewarded unto us. It is grace. It is unmerited favor, goodness, kindness of God. When we understand that we deserve no good thing from God, because listen, 
If we deserve something good from God, that means God owes us. And if God owes us, that means it's no longer reckoned of grace, but of debt. And so God owes nothing to any man, no good thing to any man. But yet God has granted us by grace His goodness, His mercy, His love, His kindness. And when we come to this understanding, how much more so appreciative should we be and are we to the God who has extended such grace, knowing that it's not that which we deserved. So this very few viewpoint I just mentioned is one which immediately places blame upon God rather than placing the blame and the responsibility of suffering and evil upon man to whom the blame rightfully belongs. We must remember that at the completion of creation, the scriptures declare that God saw that all he had created was very good in Genesis 1.31. Evil and suffering do not appear in the world until after man had sinned in the Garden of Eden. And after man had sinned, God declared his judgment upon Satan, Eve, and Adam in Genesis 1, 14 through 19. God declared the serpent would be cursed above all cattle and beasts of the field and would be destined to live and move on its belly while eating dust all of its life. The Lord declared that Eve would experience sorrow in childbirth, implying there would be pain and suffering in the process of childbirth. Jesus spoke of this sorrow when speaking to his disciples in John 16, 21. Then the Lord declared that the ground was cursed because of Adam's sin, and that as a result, he would eat from it in sorrow. Because of Adam's sin, the earth would produce thorns and thistles, and Adam would, from that time forward, sweat as he labored to produce food and provision for himself and his family. For both Adam and Eve, that which God originally gave them as a means which provided joy, fulfillment, and pleasure— it became a means which produced sorrow and suffering due to their sin. God had created all things good, but it was man who perverted that which was good by his sin. Contrary to the belief of many, God is not the author of evil, God is not the author of suffering, but rather it is man which must bear the blame and responsibility for both. For when man sinned, the earth was cursed. And Paul deals with that more so here in Romans chapter 8. So while there is much more for us to consider concerning this matter of suffering, which we will look into over the next week or two, I'm sure, we conclude our study this morning or this afternoon now with this truth. Suffering is not pleasant, but it is necessary and inevitable, and it's through suffering we are reminded that there is an eternity that awaits where not only there will be no more suffering, but also an eternity in which we will realize the glory which the Lord has produced through the sufferings of this life. In 2 Corinthians 4, 17-18, Paul makes a phenomenal statement. He said, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul here is declaring that he had an eternal perspective, and from that eternal perspective, he understood, and he acknowledged, and he submitted to this truth that all of the suffering that he presently was experiencing or would experience was all being used by God to conform him to the image of Christ and ultimately, the glory of God in eternity would be revealed, and all of this suffering would be a thing of the past, but it would have 
a present result, even in eternity, of what God was accomplishing. And so, I said to you, one could say, to suffer for the cause of Christ is superior or more excellent than to not suffer for the cause of Christ. And Peter deals with this in his epistle as well when he says, if a man suffer as a wrongdoer, then there's shame. But if a man suffer for the cause of Christ, happy. And the word happy means blessed. Blessed is the man that suffers for the cause of Christ. Does that mean we're happy in the midst of suffering, that it brings an emotion of, of glee? Of course not. But it means if we have an eternal perspective that we approach suffering, opposition to the gospel, to the work of the gospel, if we are identifying with Christ in his gospel, in the fellowship of the gospel, in the furtherance of the gospel, in the faith of the gospel, as we've seen in this first chapter, then we identify in the life of Christ, in the death of Christ, in the sufferings of Christ, and we recognize and understand that to be identified with Christ is far superior than a life that is comfortable. And this is what Paul is saying. I don't like suffering. And I think if you enjoy suffering, you're crazy. I don't want to suffer. I don't like to suffer. But I do understand this. If I bear the reproach of Christ, I am truly blessed. For to identify in his sufferings is to identify in his death. And to identify in his death is to identify in his life. So may we not just endure suffering. Well, actually, let us endure it. But when the Scripture speaks of endurance, it's not talking about just grudgingly making it through. It means with joy. So may we endure with genuine joy in the face of opposition for the sake and the cause of Christ, the suffering, the persecution, the objection, the opposition, the conflict that we may face, or we will face. And may we do so with joy, knowing that we are identified in and with him. One last thing, those who look for temporal prosperity are living with a temporal perspective and they will never understand in that mindset the truth of what Paul is saying in Corinthians, in Romans, nor in Philippians. But if we have an eternal perspective, we can recognize and see this truth. Even though we don't enjoy the suffering, we can with joy walk with Christ in and through it. That God's glory be revealed in and through our life. Let's stand together.